podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. Each episode, we'll discuss one classic book and share some recommendations for more contemporary reads that feature similar themes. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and stock your TBR with old and new reads for every literary taste. Hey, Chelsea. Hey, Sarah. So before we get started today, we just wanted to thank you all for supporting Novel Pairings in our first month of podcasting, which has been so fun. We just love hearing about your listening experiences and seeing what classics and pairings you're picking up. So keep tagging us on social media. It's a great way to tell your friends about Novel Pairings podcast and to show us what you're reading. And if you're really loving the podcast, please tell your reader friends about it and rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. That is the very best way to get novel pairings into the earbuds of brand new listeners. All right, that's our little message. We just wanted to say thank you. And now we'll get into the episode. So Sarah, our question of the day is, would you rather have a successful career or a fulfilling personal life? And you can only pick one. Okay. This is easy for me, actually. If I had to pick one, I would definitely pick fulfilling personal life. I am not a particularly ambitious person, although I do care about what I do. Of course, I'm, I'm a teacher. Um, but I would much much rather have my outside life, my relationships, my friendships, my passions be fulfilling than be super successful in my career. How about you? I actually had to think about this one. I wish that it could have just been a knee-jerk reaction for me, but uh, I am very much into achievement and... (laughs) I wouldn't say that I'm particularly competitive, but I am very achievement driven and I've just always been that way. And so I think it would be tough for me, but ultimately I would choose a fulfilling personal life because I, I love my friends and my family and I would have a really hard time sacrificing that for work. I've also just really always enjoyed having hobbies and things to do outside of a career. So yeah, I, I don't know, I have a, a hard time imagining going for the successful career and having to sacrifice the rest. Totally. And that's really what today's book is about. We're talking about The Remains of the Day by Kazuo Ishiguro. And Chelsea, before I even give a little summary of this, when did you first read this particular book? I actually read this book last year. Oh, me too. Oh, funny. I wonder if we read it around the same time. Maybe. Oh, that's so funny. Okay, keep going. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I read it while I was finishing up my master's degree in literature. So it was for, I don't know, maybe like a world literature class or I I don't even remember what the class was. Uh, I remember I was really frustrated with the class because we read absolutely zero female authors, but that's another story for another day. Um, But this was one of the books that I really enjoyed from that course. And that was the first time I read it. So it was kind of nice having read it fairly recently. Yeah, I feel the same way. I, I read it last year. I read it just 
on my own. Um, so I'll be really curious to hear what you guys discussed in your class. Kazuo Ishiguro's more recent novel, I, I think it's not that recent. It's a 2005 novel, I believe, Never Let Me Go, is one of my all-time favorite books. But I knew this was his most celebrated book. It won the Booker Prize. And so I wanted to pick it up because I knew that I loved his writing. So I read it last year. I listened to it on audio when I first read it and then picked it up as a paper copy for my most recent reading. And we'll get into this more, but I really, really love this book. (laughs) It's a good one. And it's funny because we flip-flopped our reading because I read it on paper the first time reading it, and then this most recent time I listened to it on audio. So we'll talk a little bit about the audiobook later on, too. Totally. So set in 1954, The Remains of the Day follows a quintessential English butler named Mr. Stevens on a road trip to visit his manor's former housekeeper, Miss Kenton. While on his journey, Stevens reminisces about the glory days of Darlington Hall, where he's worked for over 30 years, and his tempestuous relationship with the fiery Miss Kenton. To be honest, not much happens in the plot of this novel, but as we get deeper into Stevens' memories, we learn about Lord Darlington's shadowy history and all that Stevens has had to sacrifice to be his version of a great butler. Because this one is a modern classic, it was published in 1989, and we'll talk a little bit more about how we define modern classics, we will be talking about The Remains of the Day a bit differently than we have with some of our older classics. We'll avoid spoilers in general, and we'll give you a warning if we're about to verge into that territory. Also, just want to say that while this is a lesser-known book, we think you're going to love this discussion, and our pairings for this book might be our best yet. And I know for me personally, they include four of my all-time favorite books. I'm really excited to get to our pairings and hear more about those. Me too. So let's get into the remains of the day so we can get into the pairings. Yes. (laughs) We both already said that we really like this book, but tell me a little bit more about that, Chelsea. What do you think about this book? I liked it, but I don't know if I love it as much as you do, but I also think in general, you are perhaps more drawn to the character studies and character-driven books than I am. I do like a little bit more plot, at least for my favorite books. I enjoy a character-driven book, but they're usually not the top of my favorites list. So I really liked this one. I didn't love it, but I did find it to be such a satisfying read as someone who loves history and who really enjoys British literature. I just found it to be a book that checks so many boxes for me. What about you, Sarah? Yeah, well, you said a lot in there that I completely agree with. I think the history in this book is so interesting. The post-World War II moment in British history and the reflection on that, I think, is absolutely fascinating. I also think you're totally right. I love a good character-driven story. Always my favorite books are character-driven and fairly introspective and reflective. It's not that I don't enjoy a good plot. I certainly do. And I couldn't read, you know, even probably three Remains of the Day type books in a row without going a little bit crazy. 
But these are certainly the type of books that stick with me. The books that are really introspective, I think is the best word to describe this, and really interested in examining what it means to be human. And you can probably sense the hesitancy in my voice to even say that because I think there are a lot of problems with suggesting that some books speak to a universal experience. And so I'm reluctant to say that any book does that. But I do think that some books are interested in the project of certain vulnerable feelings that make people people. I love those books, and this is one of the best of them. It is. There's there's such an element of a true psychological study here. And I really liked listening to it on audiobook because it reads very much like a personal journal. And so for people who enjoy listening perhaps to memoir on audio, I think that this actually falls really well in that. And of course, the writing is just good. Ishiguro is just a fantastic (laughs) writer. I mean, there's a reason he's won like every award there is to win. Yes, including the Nobel in literature now. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about the style. It does feel more like a memoir, especially when you listen to it on audio. I think the narrator on audio does a fantastic job of bringing Stevens to life and making us really invested in his memories and his growth or lack thereof. We can get into that a bit. I also think this one is short. It's a very quick read. I think I read it and maybe... I read it in a day, so maybe four hours total. I think the audio is like eight hours. So even if character-driven novels aren't your cup of tea, this one would be maybe a good one to give a try because it's so short. It's really a breeze. And as you mentioned, the writing is good. I mean, it's phenomenal, but it's not flowery. It's not at all prohibitive. It's really easy to read. I agree. And I think there really is something special about a classic that is super short because the sense of accomplishment that you can get from reading a classic book in a day is fabulous for one's reading life, in my opinion. It really is. We might have to do a bonus episode on classics that are under 250 pages or something like that. But let's get into Stevens a little bit. This novel doesn't have very many characters at all in terms of main characters who we actually follow and see interactions with. So Stevens, we're really stuck with him for a lot of the book. So <laughs> we're in his You head. say stuck. I say we get to spend a lovely road trip with Stevens. <laughs> well, I think we're going to have some, our first, maybe our first differing opinions on the podcast here. So I would love to hear what you think of him. Okay, so he's a complicated figure, but I think that the way that Ishiguro introduces him is a way that plays on a lot of readers' sympathies, maybe, and at least for me, it makes me really kind of sad for him. He's in some ways kind of a pathetic figure, and we'll have to unpack that because he needs to take responsibility for his life <laughs> and some choices, and he doesn't. But in the opening prologue, where Stevens is talking about the new owner of Darlington Hall, Stevens has worked at Darlington for over 30 years, primarily for 
Lord Darlington, who's a titled British aristocrat. Now Darlington Hall is owned by an American named Mr. Faraday, and Stevens in the prologue is talking about what it's like to work for this new American and how Mr. Faraday expects Stevens to banter with him and exchange witticisms and Stevens doesn't know how to banter because he's been a butler who's been expected to be seen and to serve but not to interject any sort of personality into his day-to-day life at all and now he's working for this American who wants to kind of treat him like a pal and joke around with him and he just keeps saying how he'll have to practice his bantering And it's so, I don't know, something about his earnestness makes me really side with him and care about him. And just, I don't know, he wins me over in the prologue. I will say the moments of humor in this book are my favorite. Whenever It's funny. It's really funny. It is funny. And whenever we get a moment of him practicing a joke or even exchanging wit, with another character, that's when I do like him a little bit. But I have to say that the main emotion, and I think this is how we're supposed to feel about him, is that I really pity him. Yes. And I I don't I don't like pitying characters that mm. I'm also kind of trying to root for. I don't necessarily have to like every main character in order for me to enjoy a book, but I I don't enjoy that heavy feeling of pity that I get with Stevens along this journey and it's kind of uncomfortable being with him because he's awkward and he doesn't get it and you just wish that someone would really speak the truth to him but I also think that that really exposes this very stereotypical British way of life of being very closed off and not emotive, and keeping things in. And throughout the book, I recognize that, and I enjoy that as, you know, the analysis part of my brain likes that, but I I don't enjoy him as, like, a buddy. Totally fair. It's very true that pity is the main emotion we're supposed to feel towards him, although I, I do think we are supposed to condemn some of his choices as well and I enjoy that complication that Ishiguro sets up that we feel bad for him and the way his life has gone and also think like how could you do that how could you have made that choice I think that discomfort that you're talking about I can't say I enjoy it but I do love a book that's just reminds me like Oh, humans, we're all so fragile and broken, and we're just bumbling about trying to do our best. (laughs) And for me, that's always been a big part of the beauty of literature, is that, wow, humans are fragile, and also look at the art they can produce, and look at the way we can think about ourselves and reflect on our lives. And that all comes together in this book. Just a bit on the humor, too. I, I... I want to read this part because (laughs) I love it so much (laughs) where he tries to make a joke. He, he tries to make this joke to his employer, Mr. Faraday. And then he says, 
and I followed this with a suitably modest smile to indicate without ambiguity that I had made a witticism, since I did not wish Mr. Faraday to restrain any spontaneous mirth he felt out of a misplaced respectfulness. And then his employer doesn't understand his joke. And so then he says, pretending to remember something I had urgently to attend to, excused myself, leaving my employer looking rather bemused. I just... I feel for him. I feel that awkwardness so deeply. Maybe I'm revealing a little bit too much about myself on this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Those are the moments that I I love in the book. And I think the way that you remarked on humans bumbling about and using art as a way to sort of express the messiness of life is so lovely. I love that. Thanks. (laughs) Trying to defend my love of this very strange butler. (laughs) I'm sure you're not alone by any means. And we'll talk about the other butlers in pop culture that we can connect him with later on. But I don't think you're alone at all. But let's talk about some of the perhaps mistakes that he makes or some of those moments where we're like, oh, buddy, come on. Yeah without getting too spoilery, but what are some of the moments that really make us shake our heads at him? Well, there are some big ones that relate to the question that we started our episode with about personal life over career or vice versa. And Stevens is very obsessed with becoming a great butler. And he talks a lot about how he defines greatness. And he basically defines it as somebody who can carry on with their work without showing any signs of weakness, basically, even in the most trying of times. And there's a section of the book where he's experiencing a severe personal loss, and he refuses to acknowledge it or be present for the person he ought to be present for, and just keeps serving the manner like it's a normal evening and it's really hard to watch it's heart-wrenching that part of the book breaks my heart and even on my second read I almost felt it more like the pit in my stomach reading that it's and I'm not saying it's like oh this is hard to read it's not like a violent scene or anything not at all that way it is just it is so heartbreaking yes It really is. And I think that is what makes this book very masterful. And even if this isn't a book you love as a reader, I think it's hard to read this book and not recognize that Ishiguro is a master of the craft because he can make you feel pity for this man, feel heartbroken at the situation, and also be very angry about how Stevens is responding to the situation he's in. Yeah, a lot of emotions at once. And I think another case where we feel that sort of frustration but also feel bad for him is his relationship with Miss Kent. Yes, Miss Kenton. Oh, Miss Kenton. What was she, the head housekeeper of Darlington? Yes, she was like the Mrs. Hughes, but she was young. (laughs) Yes. And throughout the book, so part of his road trip is to go and visit her. And 
part of the book in these flashbacks we get to see the really sweet relationship and friendship that they had at Darlington and we get hints that there could have maybe possibly been something romantic between them and so watching that slip through his hands and seeing how he chooses work at the expense of that what could have been a fulfilling and beautiful relationship is really tough it's so hard and there are just glimpses as you said so it's not like we're seeing this great once in a lifetime love blossom and then be lost forever it's just that seed of possibility that you recognize as there and that at least one of the characters recognizes is there and then it doesn't end with a bang it ends with a whimper so to speak so it it's heartbreaking and it's very real I think I think that kind of regret and what if is much more common maybe that's not true but but I do think that that sort of oh, I saw a glimpse of another life and I don't have that life is a very real human emotion. Yeah, I think so. And not even just in a romantic relationship sense, but just in general, if I made that one choice differently, what would my life look like right now? And I think some people perhaps get lost in that regret and that can be just as damaging perhaps as you know never taking those chances and uh, yeah there's it's tough to find the middle ground between having regret and wishing for what was versus contentment or you know neglecting that entirely and just pushing forward without ever having reflection right and I think that Stevens himself presents an interesting balance is the wrong word because I don't think what he's doing is healthy but he is reflecting on these moments but he's almost refusing to see what really happened in his life we see it but he doesn't recognize everything for what it is and it's a very interesting experience as a reader to see him get so close I mean like you said we don't want him to be steeped in regret for the rest of his life but he doesn't seem to even be able to acknowledge the oh, I might have pushed this person away or I might have caused this reaction. I mean, I think we could consider him an unreliable narrator. He is reflecting on his life, but he is not getting to a deep enough level to where it's changing him. I don't think that by the end of the novel, he's really changed, which I think is tough to read a book like that. For As someone who really enjoys character growth, we don't really see a ton of that here. Yeah. But there are details sprinkled throughout the novel that make it really clear that he is missing something. And we, the reader, can pick up on it, but he is not. And so that disconnect is really fascinating. Yeah, I read a great review of this book by Solomon Rushdie. And he talks about exactly that, about the kind of lack of growth and his reflection without letting his reflection change him. And one of the things he says is the real story here is that of a man destroyed by the ideas upon which he has built his life. But he has to keep clinging to those ideas, even though they're what has destroyed his life. He feels like it's too late for him. So 
all he can do is continue to cling to these ideas in the hope that that will keep him from regret and despair. So I understand kind of psychologically what or why he can't experience that growth. But you're right. It's very frustrating as a reader. And if we pull this out and we sort of, you know, zoom out thematically, the novel takes place at the end of World War II. And so we are seeing Stephen's mindset in a changing world where butlers are obsolete at this point. The class structure has completely changed in England. These old houses like Darlington are now being bought up by Americans with all of this post-war wealth. And he is having to deal with being a thing of the past and a changing world that he, yeah, like you said, he's too far gone to adjust to. And so, you know, we are sort of looking at, well, England's role in the entire world and as a colonial power changing and shifting and sort of trying to cling on to those old ways and some of that not working. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And you said it so beautifully. I do love that meta narrative. I guess this book isn't like a straight allegory or anything, but there is that tie into the history. And it's really beautifully done, and it really is evocative of the time in which it's set. So in addition to sort of enjoying the broader themes of this novel, I really love the way that it is structured. I am a sucker for flashbacks. And that's something that we very rarely get in classics, because it seems to me like it's maybe a more modern format, So I particularly enjoy the way that this is told where it's, you know, over the course of just a road trip. So we have this linear narrative of his road trip and where he goes. But then during that, we have flashbacks. And I, I just love that's one of my favorite novel formats in general. But I'm curious to hear what you think. I agree. I thought that was really enjoyable. And when authors do it well, and this book is one of those that does it well, it allows them to parcel out information at just the right time to make you grow in your understanding of the character and the pace they want you to. So you get a flashback and you get one piece of information, but then maybe in another flashback, you put a piece of information together that makes you change how you saw the first flashback. So that's very vague. So let me give an example from the book. <laughs> it comes to our attention that Stevens and Miss Kenton have these evening meetings where they drink hot chocolate and discuss the course of the day and just have friendly chats. And at one point, Stevens says about a flashback, at this point, Miss Kenton and I had stopped our evening cocoa meetings. And we're like, Hmm, I wonder why. That's strange. And then it's not until a little bit later that we learn that he called them off because of an awkward interaction or getting his feelings hurt or something like that. And then we think, oh, that completely changes how I just read that previous flashback. And so it's really beautifully executed where you're getting exactly the information you need at the right time. 
I love when I can just trust the author to put me as a reader in that place and that I can just trust that they're going to feed me what I need at exactly the right time and just go with it. I love that experience. So if you also enjoy that, definitely this is one to pick up. But who else would you recommend this book to? Well, as we've talked about offline, (laughs) we think anyone who loves Downton Abbey needs to read this book. Like, immediately. (laughs) Right away, yes. And then also go rewatch Downton Abbey. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's doing something totally different than Downton Abbey, but it's exploring, obviously, similar characters and similar ideas about about the decline of the British aristocracy and these manor homes that really were a source of employment for a lot of people up until between the world wars and maybe for some homes through World War II and that just disappearing. So both Downton Abbey, of course, and this book really explore what that must have been like for people. This book is less kind to the aristocrats than Downton Abbey is. (laughs) Definitely. And I mean, it's definitely darker. It's I'm not, we wouldn't suggest that Downton Abbey and Remains of the Day are direct comparisons to one another, but it's very similar themes. And I even think, I mean, I think Carson is very Stevens-like, so you can recognize some of the characters sort of back and forth, but it's, Remains of the Day is definitely, like you said, darker, maybe less kind to certain characters. Totally. And that's that's almost why I think people who love Downton Abbey, like me, should pick this up. Because when I watch Downton Abbey and Daisy, the kitchen maid, wants to start getting an education, me, my like progressive American self, thinks, Daisy, know your place. Stay in the kitchen. <laughs> it's terrible. But Downton Abbey does that. It makes you feel nostalgia for that kind of way of life. And The Remains of the Day works to undo that, which I think is really important. Yes, it takes all the romantic notions that you had of the upstairs-downstairs life and really exposes some of the ugliness of it. Yes, and we should say, we're not going to spoil this, but Lord Darlington is an ugly character he is borderline evil i would say and we learn some of the secrets of his politics and his past throughout the course of the novel and it's fascinating to see stevens's blind spots on that stevens makes some truly horrific almost unforgivable decisions i would say to support lord darlington and i i just find that fascinating the way the book explores the relationship between a servant and his employer who is not a good person. He's no Lord Grantham and Lord Grantham has his problems as well. Yes. So definitely Downton Abbey fans, you need to pick this up, but also just anyone who really likes character driven, super introspective. It's not slow move. Like I don't think it's slow. There's just not a lot of plot, but There's a little, you know, with the Lord Darlington stuff, there's just a tiny little bit of mystery to parse out. So. I agree. And again, it's a quick one. So it's not one of those classics where you're committing to weeks of your life. I mean, 
you can read this over the course of a day if you have the time or a couple afternoons for sure. Yeah, and it's easy to read beautiful writing. So if you enjoy that kind of book, I think you will love this one. And as we mentioned, we both loved this one on audio. So let's talk about that and take a little ad break before we get into our pairings for today. Yes. So I listened to The Remains of the Day on audio this time around, and I loved the listening experience. It was a really great narrator. And in addition to the library, I get most of my audiobooks from Libro FM. And Sarah, I know that you really love them too. Yes. And especially as we're recording this, we're recording a couple of weeks early, but this may still remain true. Many independent bookstores have shut down for social distancing measures, and we're so proud of our indies for taking that step. A great way to continue supporting them during this time is through Libro FM. Libro FM is the only audiobook company that allows listeners to purchase audiobooks directly from their favorite indie bookstores. You can choose from tons of new releases and bestsellers, all for the same price as other audiobook subscription companies. Listeners, if you believe in supporting indie bookstores, now is the time to try Libro FM. Right now, you can get three audiobooks for $14.99. That's three audiobooks for the price of one with the code Novel Pairings. Just enter code Novel Pairings or click on the Libro FM link in our show notes. All right, Chelsea, as mentioned at the top of this episode, our Collective six pairings include four of my all-time favorites, and so I could not be more excited to talk about these books with you today. Do you want to get us started with your first pairing? Sure. I'm very excited to hear about which ones are your absolute favorites, but my first pairing is Atonement by Ian McEwan, and I think that in another 10 years, this one will be considered a classic too. I believe it was published in maybe 2001. It was the early 2000s. I also think that McEwen is a jerk. I think I've read some things about him not being a great guy, so I don't want to fully endorse him or his work as a whole. However, I will say if you like The Remains of the Day or you want sort of that darker high society World War II novel about class and culture and history, Atonement is a character study not a ton of plot. And there's also unique narrative format, which I don't want to say too much about because I think it kind of gives away the ending. But I'll just give a brief summary. In 1936, Brini Talis is crossing the bridge from childhood to adolescence, and she's still very much a girl, but she's sort of on the verge of becoming a teenager. She has this big imagination, and she witnesses a flirty moment between her sister, Cecily, and Robbie, who is a family friend and the son of one of their longtime servants. Some other events happen that are really confusing to her in her innocent mind, which leads to a terrible accusation that absolutely rocks the family and sets them all on a course with huge repercussions. This coincides with the start of World War II and really explodes into chaos. There's a lot of tension and uncomfortable moments in here, and it's not a feel-good book, but it definitely captures a time period and the ways of the British elite families who really protect themselves above all else at all costs. And 
it absolutely is such a side-by-side pairing with the remains of the day. It really is. It's a perfect pairing. And this is one of my all-time favorites. I love this book so much. As you probably can imagine, given all of the things I've already said about what I love in books. But this book does one of my favorite things, which is there's a, not a twist, but there's a development at the end of the novel that makes you see the rest of the novel in an entirely new light. And I love it when books can pull that off. Yes, absolutely. And this one was turned into a film as well. And I think it translates pretty well to the screen. I don't know if I've watched the adaptation all the way through, or at least not for a really long time. But it's a really beautiful on-screen adaptation, just in terms of like the costumes and visuals alone. Agree. Also, that green dress library scene is probably the sexiest scene I've ever watched. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good one. Add it to your quarantine watch list. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) What is on your list of pairings? So my first book pairing is The Sense of an Ending by Julian Barnes. Have you read this one? No, I haven't. So even the first time I read The Remains of the Day, I couldn't stop thinking about this book. I mean, even the titles are so similar. The Remains of the Day, The Sense of an Ending. You can tell just from the titles that they're going to tackle similar themes. I have to start by saying that I often cite this as one of my favorite books of all time, but it's been a few years since I've read it. So I definitely remember the feeling of this book more than I remember the details. So here is the brief summary. The main character is a middle-aged man named Tony Webster. He lives a very normal life with a typical job. He lives in a small town. He's divorced. He has a friendly relationship, though, with his ex-wife and his adult daughter. Tony isn't naturally a very introspective guy, but the book begins with him starting to think more carefully about his past, in large part because an old friend from his childhood re-enters his life. Throughout the book, you start to see that the way Tony remembers his life is not the truth of his life. Like The Remains of the Day, this is an extremely introspective book, and it's about reflecting back on your life and realizing that you got things wrong. Not just made wrong choices, but actually misremember pivotal moments from your life. I just love, love, love books that reflect on the narratives we give our own lives to make meaning out of them. So the way we tell ourselves stories to make sense of the way we've lived our life. I totally get that this is not everybody's thing, but if you like slower paced but short introspective books, this one is for you. And much like Atonement, the end of this book is totally shocking, like makes you see everything in a whole new light. It's so good. That sounds really good. It's really good. It's also short. I'm I'm not sure how long it is on audio, but it's definitely like right around 200 pages, little book. Similar writing even to Kazuo Ishiguro. I think this would make a great pairing. Nice. I love a good short, short and quick literary fiction. Me too. All right. What's your second pick, Chelsea? My next pick is somewhat 
lighter, I think, than my other ones. This Good. Is, I think we need that. <laughs> I think so. Um, this is Maisie Dobbs by Jacqueline Winspear. And Maisie Dobbs is the first book, but that's also the main character. And it's a really extensive series. So I'm just kind of recommending the series as a whole. I think it strikes a similar tone to The Remains of the Day. But it's actually the first book in a long, cozy mystery series. It's also a really deep character study. So Maisie Dobbs was a nurse in World War I, and after the war, she sets up her own private investigating practice. Each book in the series follows Maisie on a new case and a new mystery, but also tracks the changes happening in post-war England and the world at large. Maisie's PTSD and her complicated relationships get sort of featured in each book, and we also get information on Maisie's past, sometimes in flashbacks. She worked for a wealthy household and was ultimately sort of discovered by a family friend to have a special talent for investigative work, and the family helped her through school, and her father still works for them, so there's that whole complex upstairs-downstairs vibe running through the series, and she's in the middle because she's a working woman of independent means. She's kind of, she's educated, so she's kind of up with this aristocratic family, but then her father comes from a more humble background. He still works for them, so she's very much stuck in the middle. There's a little bit of romance as well, and Maisie is highly sensitive and empathetic and channels that into her work, which I find really interesting as someone who is an empath and highly sensitive as well. This series is excellent on audio, and with, I think there are like 16 books in this series or something, it gives you absolutely endless hours of listening material, so I highly recommend listening to this one on audiobook. That sounds delightful. I love a good British lady detective, so I'll have to give that series a try. I think of the British lady detectives, you would really like... Maisie yeah just like personality wise and I think you would really appreciate the tone especially obviously because it's paired with one of your favorite classics <laughs> yes okay well my next pick is still pretty serious sorry about that all of my picks are serious <laughs> <laughs> my next one is the garden of evening mists by Tan Tuan Ang and one of my coworkers lent me this book recently. This is my coworker who teaches AP European history, so I trust his recommendations on historical fiction. And because he just lent it to me, I actually read this right around the same time that I reread The Remains of the Day, and I really enjoyed reading them back to back, so I think some of our listeners might as well. Like Remains, this book is post-World War II historical fiction. It has a similar tone, but a very different setting and much more of a plot. It's set in Malaysia and uses dual timelines that alternate between the 1950s and the 1980s. Our main character is Yoon Ling. In the 1980s timeline, she's a successful judge who's just retired from the bench because she's beginning to experience the early symptoms of a neurological condition that's going to really impact her ability to do her job, so she decides to step down early. 
Post-retirement, she arrives at the secluded Yuguri Gardens, and these are the only Japanese gardens in Malaysia. And it's a property that we find out early on she owns, which we don't know the connection there yet. In the 1950s timeline, we still follow Yoon Ling. We follow her the first time she visits Yuguri. She's in her 20s, and she's suffering from severe PTSD after being held in a Japanese war camp during World War II. In this timeline, we see her meet the enigmatic master Japanese gardener, Eritomo, and watch their relationship develop as kind of a mentor-mentee relationship. That's a lot of plot. It sounds convoluted, but it's really seamlessly done within the novel in the way it alternates between the timelines. What I love about this book, first of all, is the setting. I had never read a book set in Malaysia before, and I didn't know anything about what that part of the world experienced during World War II. I think the author, Tan Tuan Eng, did an amazing job exploring that and kind of explaining the history without making it feel like it was written for a Western audience. He didn't explain too much which I thought was great. I had to do a lot of my own research, which I appreciate in books like this. I also really loved the characters. They were all really tough and sometimes understandably cynical about everything they experienced during the war, but they also really all needed to be vulnerable and they needed community and the way people from different backgrounds came together to heal was so powerful. It's a really beautiful book, and it was something I'd never heard of before my coworker lent it to me, and I'd love to see more readers pick it up because I thought it was really powerful. And like The Remains of the Day, The Garden of the Evening Mists is a book about looking back on your life and your decisions, but this one, there's more growth. There's definitely a meatier plot. And this one might be a little bit more accessible. I hate to say that because I don't want that to sound dismissive of the writing. It's gorgeous. But it kind of follows that more familiar alternating timeline perspective that a lot of historical fiction readers love and I love as well. That one sounds really good. And it's always refreshing to get a World War II historical fiction that's that's not England or the United States. Totally. I think you would enjoy this one. It's it's beautiful, and the descriptions of the garden are just stunning, and I really loved it. Ooh, I might have to pick that one up. All right, what is your third and final book for us today? All right, this is another one that I loved on audio, so we're just kind of going with that theme as well. That's today. awesome. But my last pick is Americana by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Another one of my all-time faves. Yay. It's so good. <laughs> it's so good. So I'll share the premise of this one first and then sort of connect the dots with the remains of the day and why I chose it. So our two young and hopeful main characters, Ifemelu and Abinze, fell in love in Nigeria and then departed for the West, her to America, him to England. Ifemelu excels in school and creates a popular blog where she shares her complicated thoughts on being Black in America, which is a whole different experience for her compared to being in Nigeria. Obinze thought he would join her, but after 9-11 and certain travel restrictions, he is stuck 
and undocumented in London, living a life he never envisioned for himself. So the structure of this novel is lovely, and I felt so connected to the characters, rooting for them. Fifteen years later, they reunite in Nigeria, which is newly democratic and different since they left. It's a really satisfying book. And there's a lot to think about, great characters who grow and change, and a page-turning plot. I think that it pairs really well with Remains of the Day because of its social commentary and its reflective nature. Its structure really kind of reminds me of the Remains of the Day and the way that it weaves in and out of points of view and flashbacks. And it's just a lot of personal reflection that we get from the characters. It also takes these countries that like to see themselves as the greatest world powers, America and Great Britain, and exposes the truth about them and exposes the truth about colonialism through this really engaging story. It's just a beautiful book. It's such a good book. This is probably one of my most recommended books. I love getting people to read this. And I love the connections you made between the remains of the day. I would not have seen those without you pointing them out. So I love that. Fun. I'm, I feel really proud of myself right now that I picked two of your all-time favorite books to pair. I just <laughs> am getting this sense of pride. <laughs> I'm really proud of you, too. <laughs> Great picks. <laughs> All right, wrap us up here. So my third and final book is Life After Life by Kate Atkinson. At the top of this episode, I mentioned that four of this week's pairings were my all-time favorites, and this is one of those. In fact, I think this might be my absolute favorite piece of World War II historical fiction. It's a little bit weird, but if you can accept the premise of this book, you will fall head over heels in love. So Life After Life follows Ursula Todd. On the first pages of the book, we see her birth and then her immediate death. But then on the next page, we see her birth again. This time she lives a little bit longer, but still meets an untimely death. And the book continues to follow this pattern through many, many, many versions of Ursula's life. In each life, we see something happen differently that allows her to live a little bit longer. It could be a major choice that Ursula makes, or it could be something nearly imperceptible, but there's always one thing that changes the course of her life. And as the story develops, we start to piece together what Ursula's fate really is and what purpose life has for her. So it's a fascinating structure. It's really gripping. Like, you just want to keep turning the pages and see what's going to become of Ursula in the life that you're in, and then what is going to change for her in the next life that lets you keep keep reading and let her keep living. It's also similar to The Remains of the Day in that it's all about choices, large or small, or even the ones that are out of our hands that lead us to where we end up. I really highly recommend this novel, especially if you love World War II fiction, or maybe you're you're a lover of World War II fiction, but you're a little bit burnt out on some of the same plots showing up again and again. This is a very different take on a very beloved genre. That one I have had on my list for a really long time, 
But to be honest, I've taken a really long break from World War II historical fiction. The only World War II historical fiction, I think, over like the last two or three years that I've read. Um, I loved Dear Mrs. Bird. So cute. And uh, The Alice Network. And other than that, I've just really taken a break from it. I got kind of burned out on it. But this one does sound like it's definitely... Like you said, there's something different about it that really sets it apart, and it's so much more than just a historical fiction novel focused on the history, so it sounds really good. Yes, it's very different, and I think a lot of readers and and listeners, you know yourselves, and if that premise sounds too hard to buy into, I completely understand. I think Kate Atkinson does a good job with it. She doesn't try to explain this like a magical element she just runs with it and that's what I like in these types of books but again this this one is you have to be able to buy in and and settle into this very strange style but if you can it's great all right well I would love to move on to our picks of the week and find out what other thing in general you would like to pair with the remains of the day All right, so I am recommending a podcast I really love today. It is called You're Wrong About, and it's hosted by Sarah Marshall and Michael Hobbs. So the You're Wrong About podcast takes events from recent history, a lot of 90s events, I want to say, and it does exactly what its title suggests. It shows you why you're wrong about what you think about this particular event. And a lot of it's focused on media narratives of events and how the media narratives stick with us, even though those interpretations were initially wrong and remain wrong. So they have a whole series about, for example, the O.J. Simpson trial. They also have a fantastic series. If you're going to just listen to a couple episodes, I think there's two episodes on Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan. It's so good. It's just so smart. And what I love about this as paired with The Remains of the Day, the tone is totally different, first of all. This isn't like a serious history podcast. It's It tackles serious subjects, but it does it in a really accessible, fun feels weird to say, but it is kind of a fun listen. But it really looks at the way that we've told stories incorrectly and how to make up for that and what the real story is or at least what multiple sides of the story is so that we're not getting a story filtered through a single lens. It's really a delightful listen. I highly recommend the podcast in general. If you are going to start somewhere, definitely start with the Tanya Harding episodes. They're fabulous. You've mentioned this one to me several times. I haven't. (laughs) I really do want to listen to it. I just have not added any more podcasts to my queue. But if I do choose to add another one, this is the first one that's going to drop in there. Well, and they've been doing this for so long. I, I recognize it's really hard when a podcast has been around for a while to know where to jump in or if you can just jump in. And with this one, I think... It really is just scroll through, pick the topics that are interesting to you, and check those ones out. I like a podcast like that. Me too. All right, what's your pick of the week? 
So this one I have to recommend with the caveat that I have not seen it yet, but I'm really excited about it. And I can't help but pair it with this book. So there is a new HBO mini series called The Plot Against America. And based on what I've heard, it's going to be really worth watching. So I guess we'll find out together if <laughs> listeners end up watching it with me. So the synopsis is that this is set in the 1940s and a working class Jewish family in New Jersey watches the political rise of aviator hero and xenophobic populist Charles Lindbergh as he becomes president and turns the nation toward fascism. This is largely based on history. Uh, Lindbergh was indeed a fascist and made some really horribly racist speeches. And a lot of the series actually takes true history and events that happened and places it in the story. But it's also a reimagining of Philip Roth's novel of the same name. So it is a mix of history and literature based around post-World War II era. And there are just a lot of I don't know, ties with the remains of the day that I can see with the series. And I also think it's going to wind up being extremely timely. And uh, Winona Ryder is in it, which I don't know, I've really liked her and stuff that she's been doing <laughs> lately. So I'm excited to check this out. And I love a mini series. I can't wait to watch this one. Well, I hope that our listeners enjoy those picks as much as you do, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> For more classic lit enthusiasm and podcast news, follow us on Instagram at Novel Pairings Pod or on Twitter at Novel Pairings. We'd love to know whether you pick up The Remains of the Day or any of the books that we mentioned today. So feel free to tag us and tell your friends about the Novel Pairings Podcast by writing a review on Apple Podcasts or sharing our most recent episode on social media. We declare, after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How soon one tires of anything than of a book. We'll be back soon with an episode on Romeo and Juliet by William Shakespeare.